You're listening. You're listening to WNHHLP, 103.5 FM New Haven, streaming live at www.newhavenindependent.org and broadcasting live from our offices on 51 Elm Street. This is the Tom Ficklin Show with Tom Ficklin. Lucy, how are you doing this morning? I'm great. How are good, you, Tom? Good. Thanks for, for the intro and really every Monday, as I mentioned, it's a good time to kind of be more focused and to start the start the week off, the month off, the year off, the, the life off on, on a good note. We're really, uh, uh, I would say blessed. People use that term a lot, but we're privileged. We're privileged. And what you hear in the background, by the way, is a Mandingo All-Stars. But uh, this morning, Professor Caleb Smith is with us and I mentioned the blessings and the, the benefit of, of life because we're going to talk about a person historically as well as maybe even from a societal perspective of how folks are become indentured, imprisoned, how their liberation efforts can sometimes be thwarted just in terms of circumstance or society. We're also going to talk about how history kind of reveals and illuminates and uh, really brings life past, present, and future to our current situation. So without any more metaphors, Caleb, but I, uh, I say that uh, uh, hopefully you understand why I'm kind of trying to share some literary virtuosity, but I can't do it because I have a professor sitting beside me uh, who's been, Professor Smith has been a, a 10 years, I believe, professor at, at, at Yale. And, um, and Caleb is professor of English and, and American Studies at Yale University and also author of The Oracle and The Curse and The Prison and the American Imagination. But we're here today to talk about his, I believe, have you, this, this book we're talking about is your third book, but have, That's his, right. his third book, um, and the title is this really, really, really convenient and the synchronicity of it given today being Halloween, the life and adventures of a haunted convict, the life and the adventures of a haunted conflict, a convict rather. It's an, it's an 1858 narrative by Austin Reed, an African-American inmate of, uh, New York's Auburn state prison. And you edited the book, uh, Random House was the publisher. That's right. Random House, the publisher, and came out in 2016. Welcome, Caleb. Thank you very much. Happy uh, Halloween, Tom. Happy Good to Halloween. Be here. So, in fact, uh, Lucy and some of the other staff people here came in with their costumes. So, we're really going to talk about the the cost the costume of life mm. and uh, and the uniform of life and how sometimes you have to shape shift and and uh, convert or be converted to defining your, uh, your your life purpose and your mission. Um, tell us a little bit about your most recent book. Life and Adventures of a Haunted Convict. Sure. That's, that's just fascinating. Sure. Uh, this is the 1858 uh, prison memoir or autobiograph- autobiographical work by Austin Reed, who was a free black man from Rochester, New York, uh, born around 1823, and wrote his life story in uh, 1858 while he was still an inmate at Auburn State Prison in upstate New York. Uh, it tells a story of his passage through three different uh, situations of unfreedom or scenes of captivity in the 19th century, none of which is the one we might expect from an African-American mm-hmm. in the 19th century. That is plantation slavery in the South. Mm-hmm. Born to a free black family in the North. Free. Uh, Reed passed through instead these three other scenes. One of them was indentured servitude on a farm. Another was a juvenile reformatory. He was actually in the first juvenile reformatory in the United States, a house of refuge on the Bowery in New York City. And then Auburn State Prison, which was kind of the model of the industrial 
penitentiary in the uh, in the early 19th century, uh, a prison that invented a system of discipline that would then be copied all around mm. the country in those years. Um, part of what's interesting about this book, of course, is the history that it tells us about the varieties of unfreedom in the 19th mm. century. Part of what's interesting about it is the way that it tells us something about the origins of the prison system that has uh, grown so massively since the 19th century and especially in the last few decades. And part of what's interesting about it is just the history of this document itself, the manuscript. Um, this was a, an unknown book in Reed's own lifetime. It was never published. Never and, published. And it, um, the manuscript survived for 150 years uh, in obscurity before it was discovered around 2009 and then quite a great deal of uh, research and work just to try to figure out exactly who this person was, whether this was a, an, an autobiographical account or some kind of novel or some other kind of book, and um, what we might make of this uh, handwritten text. Indeed, and good morning, everyone, again, because I know some of, some of you may just be getting up and it is a Monday morning, but this is the Tom Ficklin Show, and we're talking about the life and adventures of a haunted convict, um, and Professor Caleb Smith is here. Caleb, how did this document this manuscript this these hand they, they, these were handwritten pieces of paper that's right get into your uh, your your purview come across your universe right i wish i knew more about where this manuscript was for 150 years between 1858 when austin reed wrote it and 2008 or 2009 when it surfaced hmm. um what i can tell you is uh what i've learned from the rare book dealers who brought it to light and who uh. brought it to yale's uh, Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library mm -hmm. in 2009. They said that it uh, had been acquired at an estate sale in Rochester, New York, which was Reed's hometown and mm. the, the town where his family lived, and the town where he had some connections. Uh, but who had it for all those years? The sellers declined to be <laughs> revealed. So um, I, I kind of had hoped that when the when the book came out, that something would shake loose, that someone yes. would come forward and and identify. But it, it's that remains something uh, of a mystery. Boy. And again, we're going to we're going to delve in a little deeper to the, as you mentioned, the discovery and and then the authentication of the manuscript and its place in the African American autobiography, and American literature for that matter, and also in terms of your your previous books and and your your course and curriculum and things that you chat with students about, kind of the we hear this word intersectionality, but how history of race and slavery and prison in the United States all all are kind of reflected in this in this one document. Right, that's right. Um, are you enjoying being the author? Are you getting some feedback, good feedback? I've seen some of the reviews, and the reviews have been very impressive. Uh, uh, well, I think people, I think um, in some ways the time was right for this book, that people were thinking, of, people have been provoked by Ferguson and Baltimore and other events to think about what's happening with criminal justice and race in the United States right now, and to um, have kind of an opening for something that could tell us about the longer history of those problems, the longer history of about how policing and prisons have um, been part of the formation of uh, of race and racial inequality in the United States. And uh, Reed, being an African-American writer who could make a connection between slavery and the prison system before the Civil War, that is before emancipation, Indeed. who uh, in the era of uh, emancipation, in the era of anti-slavery, was already seeing the formation of the prison system that uh, some would say would uh, come to take the place of the plantation. Um, it was maybe the right time for this book in some ways. And you, you reference what, whether it's like the, the chicken and egg thing, whether the plantations came first or prisons came first, but sometimes it just might be uh, both of them, you know, just different, different words to describe the same, same reality. 
Um, you know, the Auburn State Prison where uh, Reed was locked up for most of 20 years opened in 1816. So this year it enters its third century mm. of continuous operation. And it still is in operation mm. as a prison in Auburn, New York. Um, what Reed saw taking shape there was something that was imagined as a new and modern system of prison discipline. Mm. In fact, the, many of the, the uh, reformers who brought the prison system into being thought of themselves as providing a humane alternative to the gallows and other kinds of corporal punishment. And many of them were involved in anti-slavery and mm. abolitionist efforts. But uh, what Reed saw on the inside in the form of whipping and unfree labor and other kinds of um, oppression was, was something that he actually saw as continuous with rather than yes. a departure from, yes. the, from the history that was happening down south. And in fact, when he was put out as an indentured servant, uh, even very early in his life, he's very explicitly made the connection there as well. Indeed. And t- talk a little bit more about that, because Doug Blackman, of course, talks about neo-slavery and the slavery mm-hmm. by another name. Mm-hmm. And you, you referenced earlier that he was free, and many people forget that there were free blacks. But even if you're free during that time, some might argue for you even if we're even free now, but if you were free during that time, you still were subject to being oh, dependent and uh, assigned to, to work under kind of P&H and other, other forms. Right. So Reed was born around 1823, and there were still some forms of legal slavery in New York State into the 1820s. Um, and, but even after uh, all um, technical slavery was abolished by law, which was in that same decade of Reed's birth in the 1820s, um, there was still a number of forms of uh, legal bondage, mm, and mm-hmm. we could talk about indentured servitude being one of those. The difference being that you would sign a contract, or your guardian would sign a contract mm. to put you out. So it was technically a matter of uh, contractual, voluntary affiliation <laughs> rather than enslavement. Um, but you know, we could also think about the the way that the specter of being captured and and taken to the South mm. really haunted free black families in mm. the North. Solomon Northrop's uh, Twelve Years a Slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, also about a free black man in upstate mm-hmm. New York who is captured and, and eventually ends up in a plantation in the South. And part of the story that Reed tells is about when he's being put out as an indentured servant. His father has died and his mother's fallen into poverty, and so she's trying to support the family, and she needs someone to take care of him, so she puts him out to work for a white farmer. But At six or six or seven or eight, yeah, eight he's years very old. Young, definitely uh, less than 10 years less old. Less than 10 years time. old. Yeah, and um, his, his brother in the, <laughs> in the story that Reed tells says, how do we know he's not going in the hands of some slaveholder? Mm. And mm. what Reed experiences there is being tied up and beaten for not working and in response against uh, being uh, treated like a slave, as he puts it. He tries to burn the farmer's house to the ground. And that's the beginning of his, that's his first conviction, his first crime that he gets sent to the um, House of Refuge for. Boy, and we were talking before we came on air, uh, Professor Smith, about anarchy and, and uh, sometimes how you have to oh, seek your freedom in a variety of ways. Waterboarding came up in the, or, or a, an early stage of waterboarding came up. Yeah. Uh, Reed undergoes at Auburn State Prison a form of punishment known as the shower bath or the showering bath. This was a contraption with a uh, bucket of water that would be suspended or uh, uh, mounted above the immobilized prisoner's head, and then the water would be sort of dumped over the person's head to simulate uh, the experience of drowning. Uh, He did, in fact, uh, endure this punishment. It was introduced to the prison, um, ironically enough, as a substitute, a humane substitute for whipping in the prison because Mm. it wasn't supposed to damage the body permanently. It wasn't going to leave a mark. It was going to be a kind of modern 
uh, machinery of yes. punishment. Um, but and it was the it is a kind of precursor to the uh, notorious waterboarding that we've heard about in um, U.S. war prisons lately. And, and it was the the, the nine of cattails that was used uh, prior. Yeah. The cat of nine tails, cat of cat right? Of nine tails. Which is a, a a kind of whip with several different ends. And and um, Reed makes a big deal out of whipping. He sees it not only as a form of violence that he has to endure, but as a form of stigma or a form of shaming that mm-hmm. he associates with being treated like a slave. So um, he he calls attention to the use of of the whip both in the uh, well in all three scenes at the at the. Uh, as an indentured servant, as a juvenile in the reformatory, and at Auburn State Prison. There's a moment in uh, the slave narrative of Harriet Jacobs, Incidents in the Life of a mm. Slave Girl, where she says about her brother, he did not mind the smart of the whip, but he did not like the idea of being whipped. Mm. And I mm. think Reed is attuned to that distinction as well. It's not just the physical suffering, it's mm-hmm. the degradation, the dehumanization that he affiliates with uh, being whipped. When... It's fair to say he did not have a typewriter, as I said. It didn't have WordPress. Uh, and we know about Frederick Douglass writing. What, what's your, what have you researched or found out about how people have really, really did this? I mean, it was right. like, and even paper, what we call right. paper today. is it's right. The, right. This well, is just still, still blows my mind. Yeah, this, this is a fascinating um, part of the work to do to authenticate this narrative was just to find out about the physical object itself. Mm-hmm. What Reed wrote in was a bound blank journal. Um, so it, it had uh, cloth covers and a, and a uh, little strip of leather along the binding of it. Um, he wrote in with a, an ink that tests positive for iron, which tells us something about the mm. date that iron uh, fell out of use in ink after the middle of the 19th century. Mm. So it helps us to, uh, to figure out when this document is from. When Reed Finished when he filled up that entire blank bound journal, he continued writing on um, two sort of gatherings of just loose mm. paper that are hand sewn together along mm-hmm. the edge to bind them. So the total manuscript, which runs to over 300 pages, includes those three kind of uh, pieces the blank journal and then these two sheaths of paper. Part of the research was trying to figure out, um, you know, does this paper, was this paper made like paper was made in this time and Mm -hmm. and where did it come from? And one of the really fascinating connections that came up was finding the watermark of a place called Carson's Mill in in Dalton, Massachusetts, Mm. up in the Berkshires. The Berkshires were huge for papermaking in this period. And as it turns out, Carson's Mill was the place where Herman Melville got his paper for writing Moby Dick. Uh, So there's a Mm. kind of, there's Mm. a little bit of a, um, yeah. connection in the paper between Reed and one of the most famous other writers of his period. The, the book is available. How can I get, how can I get my greedy hands on it? <laughs> well, it's widely available. Other than I, taking the one that's, that you brought into right, the studio right. here. No, I mean, but then you'll send me to Auburn prison. And so I'll be, so there are two ways to, uh, read this book. And I think they go well together. One of them is to get the Random House edition that mm-hmm. was released in uh, January, and you can find it anywhere in bookshops or online. But also, the entire uh, manuscript, the handwritten version of Reed's own story, has been digitized and put online by the Beinecke Library. Ah. So anyone who wants to can look at Reed's handwriting and see uh, every word put down just as just as he put it down, and, and then you can make comparisons and think about the way that the text has been edited for readers today, and and Boy. and some of the decisions that went into that editing process. Boy, we're we're going to we're going to talk we're going to come into contemporary times, perhaps in another five or ten minutes, Caleb. But I still want to my my head is still just spinning about how this even materialized and kind of 
resurrected itself in a way and that and that for us to sit here and to be lifting up the spirit of, of Austin and Malcolm X for that matter and George Jackson. I mean the prison memoirs we've heard of, we know a lot about them. Um, right. Let me mention while so while we're still on the subject of the the object itself, that mm-hmm. it's currently on display in the Beinecke Library. Mm. So if, if people are listening in New Haven and they want to take a few minutes, they you could go to the Beinecke Library at Yale. It's free and um Walk up the stairs, and you'll see Reed's own manuscript in That's one of the display cases right now. The Beinecke just uh, reopened and has a big mm-hmm. exhibit going on for that occasion, and it's there, and you can see it. They also have the new Random House edition there next to it, so you can kind of see the two together. Fascinating. And we hear about Yale and Beinecke and our uh, our prominence, really not just in New Haven or in the country, but worldwide, to have this institution here. How did how did it get to? Why did it come to you rather than Columbia, rather than UCLA, rather than a place? north of us right right rather than oxford I um mean, you know right good question well the um there were the curators at the beinecke who have a um fantastic collection in american literature and especially in african-american literature the james weldon johnson collection uh were interested in this the minute they saw it uh, mm. kind of come across their uh desk in the uh, in the, the advertisements from the rare book dealer and one mm-hmm. in particular louise bernard took an interest in it right away um, but the curators and the director at the Beinecke also had some questions about whether this mm. really could be what uh, we what, what it looked like. I mean, to find a, a book-length handwritten manuscript by an African-American writer from before the Civil War is an incredibly rare <laughs> thing. When we talk about Douglas or Harriet Jacobs or the rest of them, we don't have book-length manuscripts mm-hmm. for them. We have the first edition printed books, mm-hmm. but not the handwritten things. Yes. It's very rare. Uh, maybe the the Bond Woman's narrative, is a, which is also at the Beinecke, would be something we could compare this to um so the so the curators there were interested and they have a world-class collection of this kind of material Mm and uh, they asked my colleague uh, robert steptoe who's an expert in african-american autobiography and my colleague um david blight who's an expert in african-american history and slave narratives from this period and me who uh, had been working on prisons and the cultural history of the prison system all to take a look actually before they even acquired it to Mm. say do we think this is what it looks like? Could it really be uh, from this period? How is it? How, how will we know? Um, and we did some preliminary research at that point, and I just became enchanted by Reed's sure. sort of voice and sat down and read the whole thing in the reading room in one sitting hmm. and uh, started working on it and spent the next five or six years um, uh, uh, looking into Reed and, and his life and his world. Boy. Again, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show, and my guest is Caleb Smith, professor of English and American Studies at Yale and author of The Oracle and the Curse. We may not get to that, but we may try to. The Prison and the American Imagination. And now, The Life and Adventures of a Haunted Convict on Halloween. I mean, this is no fantasy. This is a real, a real life uh, um, mirrors, of, mirrors of drama and pathos and do you think it'll become a, a movie, perhaps, or is there any discussions in that regard? Uh, it, it could become a movie. It could become a series, something like that. It, it's um, it's full of drama. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Mm-hmm. And there does seem to be more and more interest in the African-American 19th century these days. Yes. And, and why, why do you think that is? Because we do hear a lot. I mean, obviously, we have the the uh, uh, the film that just came out. Birth of a Nation. In terms of the Nat Turner, Birth birth of a Nation 2, in a way. And I really urge people to look at Birth of a Nation 1, which is available on YouTube and its its impact on society. And and you've you've spent your academic life, and I'm assuming your undergraduate life, and obviously your graduate degree life, and what is society kind of up to when it comes to freedom and liberation and and, uh, society and systems, et cetera. Any thoughts as we shift a little bit to the contemporary scene 
about because we hear the Michelle Alexander book and the other right. books, et cetera. Any thoughts about your uh, what you've invested your life in and and hope that you, you're still a young man, so you <laughs> live a little longer about this incarceration or car- carceral state theme that we hear? Yeah, I um, am surprised and um, a little heartened to see that mass incarceration has become at least uh, an issue of controversy mm. in politics. At the time that I was writing my dissertation in uh, 2001, 2002, through to 2005, um, it seemed that we had this massive uh, prison system that was clearly a crisis for many people, but that was somehow beneath the level of partisan political mm. controversy. Mm. So uh, Democrats and Republicans alike eagerly participating in the expansion of the prison yes. system. In some ways, the uh, first Clinton administration, maybe we can call it that now, uh, was as instrumental as any yes. in expanding the prison system. And so uh, there didn't seem to be a kind of uh, a way to take um, um, an, in mainstream kind of spectrum politics, it wasn't a position to be against this. It yes. was a kind of arms race who mm-hmm. could build the most prisons the fastest. And that's changed some. And we now have um, something like prison reform on the agenda or as a, as a possibility on the horizon. Um, one of the things you learn if you look deep into the history of the prison system, though, is that the prison is actually an institution created by reform. That mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm, was supposed to be mm-hmm, the humane alternative mm-hmm. to the gallows and the Indeed. whipping post and yes. the stocks and so on. So it was a kind of um, liberal or humanitarian or and, and, and often explicitly Christian intervention yes. in what was taken to be a violent, dehumanizing form of punishment. And it was supposed to be uh, one that would lead to rehabilitation, uh, a smoother reentry, a destigmatization of criminality and... Um, even a kind of redemption for the mm-hmm, people who were mm-hmm. placed into these institutions. So there are, uh, there's reason for hope if what reform leads to is fewer people sitting in prisons. Indeed, uh, There's also some reason for suspicion about what reform might mm. lead to if, mm. it, if what it ends up leading to is the expansion of the prison or the deepening of its hold, not only over people's bodies, but over their minds and hearts. Yes, yes, yes. What, what caused you as, I, I always like to take a minute or two to kind of not pose any, any like suspicious questions or, or gotcha questions, <laughs> but for, as you just alluded, for you to kind of adopt that, that PhD theme, that, that thesis theme when it was not pop, politically correct in a way to do it, what was your impetus there, your stimulation, uh, your, your, uh, your, have you always had this kind of interest in society and justice? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, for many of us academics, there's some uh, biographical story behind mm. what we're doing. Uh, for me, there's, uh, there was some early experience with people I knew and cared about being in prison and me seeing the way that it mm. had transformed them. Um, the depths of the transformation that it could, uh, that it could uh, bring about yes. in somebody in a short time. Um, I think... There was also, uh, I was also in graduate school working on my dissertation at a peculiar kind of time in American history. So it was Mm. right after 2001. Mm. And all of a sudden, um, many of us who had been more or less content to be writing about poetry and novels found ourselves living in history and wanted to think more intensely about politics. I lived in a house with a group of people who all were sort of provoked in various ways to to, um, become, to try to think through 
the political present, even when we were working on something like 19th century American literature. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of late night conversations um, in that situation as much as anything that shaped the beginning of my um, well, my first book. Mm -hmm. the, and again, that was the Oracle and the Curse. Now, that was the prison and the American oh, the, imagination. Oh, the yeah. Yeah. Which was, which, uh, which came out in 2009. It was based on my dissertation. So tell us a little about, if you don't, if you don't mind, cause it, it seems to me that your, your trilogy or what, I'm not sure what yeah. the phrase is for, for, for your fourth. Are you working on a fourth book by the way? Well, I'm just <laughs> going to get started on that soon. <laughs> well, what, te tease us a little bit. What, what might be the, the possible working title or, uh, well, that you're... I don't know if I'm ready to. I don't know if I'm ready to talk about <laughs> no a new thing. Today. Right no, no this, leaks. this book just came out, and I'm just <laughs> starting to sketch new things. But I can tell you a little bit about the story of the first book, and okay. maybe how it, All right. maybe how it goes. That, that's fair to the second book. Um, so the the prison and the American imagination is uh, really about is a really kind of a cultural history or or a history of the um, the ways of imagining prisons in the United States from the origin point of the penitentiary system in the early. 19th century through, um, well, is a sort of tracing a kind of genealogy of mass incarceration mm. that, that mm. spans those two centuries. Um, and it was also very much written in the era of post 9-11, uh, um, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, and mm. those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. Well, so th thinking about the relationship between the prison system and the war prisons that were, yes. that were um, calling so much attention to themselves in those days. That book is organized around think, uh, sort of trying to figure out the relationship between two ways of talking about the prison that both have a lot, make some sense, that both tell part of a story and that people are able to um, hold on to sometimes without seeing the other side. One of them is that the prison is a place where uh, people go to be de dehumanized, mm. to live a kind of civil death, mm -hmm. to be excluded, to be cast out from the, uh, the community. And that's a way of thinking about the prison as a scene of punishment, of sometimes mm. brutal punishment. Mm. The other is that prison is a place where people go to be rehabilitated, where they learn lessons, where they turn their lives around, and where uh, they emerge m more able than they were before to live a productive life in the collective world, to become citizens again or partial citizens again. Uh, and this is maybe the side that would be taken by some reformers who want to see the prison mm. become a place um, of rehabilitation rather than simply a punishment or exclusion mm -hmm. or dehumanization. There's also uh, another criticism of that very project, which says, well, you say you're trying to rehabilitate, but actually you're exercising an even deeper form of control, mm. not just controlling people's bodies, but mm. controlling their minds, mm. controlling their mm. hearts or something. Anyway, I wanted to think about the relationship between those two things that a prison is said to do on the one hand to dehumanize us and on the other hand to humanize us or yes. to be a scene of rebirth and and to think about whether they were irreconcilable or how they might have fit together in the long Boy. sort of history Boy. of imagining the prison and what i found was that at least early on the idea that a prison would be a place where you went to have a kind of living death was in fact very compatible with the idea that a prison would be a place where you would be rehabilitated because it was said or it was imagined that you would have to endure a kind of spiritual death or a death of the mm. criminal self mm. so that your mm. higher self or your <laughs> reformed self could be reborn out of mm -hmm. that. So a great deal of violence and dehumanization was um, sort of brought in yes. uh, along, the, along the lines of this kind of secular resurrection narrative of mm. rehabilitation. And, and then the transition to the oracle and the curse? Yeah. Um, 
that in a way it was a kind of transition from the scene of punishment to the scene of trial the yes. oracle and the curse is a book about trials it's a book about um how people made claims for justice mm. in the era between the revolution and the civil war so if you felt that the law was not granting you justice uh what kind of appeal did you have what kind of language could you speak in opposition to yes. the law so it thinks about how uh the law came to explain itself as reasonable uh as rational and as secular mm. uh the long transition from the idea that earthly laws were really manifestations of god's laws to the idea that earthly laws were civil laws based on reason and natural law maybe right. rather than divine law and how that opened up the possibility that divine law could be a resource of protest that people could say i may be guilty in the eyes of the earthly law but i'm justified mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. eyes of god mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, higher law they call it i can see the the picture of as you can see a picture of MLK with his the sign and, the, and his number being there you sent go. to jail. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it's a it's uh, quite explicitly there in Martin Luther King uh, in in the letter from a Birmingham jail, for instance. He says it's uh, it is we have a moral obligation to disobey unjust laws. So you see him drawing that line between mm -hmm. morality and the and 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 the law. Again, and you're listening to the Tom Ficklin show, and it's such a Deep pleasure. We, we got to have you back, by the way. Sure, uh, anytime. We'll be chatting with Caleb Smith, and Caleb is the professor of English and American Studies at Yale, and we were chatting about, just a few seconds ago, the Oracle and the Curse book, and his also book, The Prison and the American Imagination, but more recently, The Life and Adventures of a Haunted Conflict. I mean, these have been some deep dives that, you, that, that you've taken, Caleb. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, turning to Austin Reed's book was a... Uh, a real kind of a, a different kind of thinking though. I mean, it, it, I, I sometimes joke that if based on my first two books, if I had been able to invent some narrative from the 19th century that showed that I was onto something in the way that I was describing yes. prisons and the way that I was describing claims for justice, that this would be the book. Indeed, I mean, indeed. Austin Reed indeed. invokes that higher law. He invokes that law of God to, to justify himself. He says, he says, in the day when I stand before God, I'll show him my back where I've been whipped and I'll show him my scars from the prison and, and he'll justify me. Mm -hmm. um, and he and Austin Reed also gives a kind of uh, meticulous, long, um, troubling account of the inner workings of one of the kinds of institutions, one of the kinds of prisons that I was that I had been writing about as far back as my dissertation. But yes. it was also a different kind of book for me because uh in in a lot of ways it's not my book mm -hmm, uh, so mm -hmm, so my mm -hmm. project here was to try to open up austin reed's book um i did write a long introduction to place it in context to give some ways of approaching it to, to give people some background on what these institutions were and and what kind of writing might have been going on in and around them um, but I was really trying to preserve Reed's own account um, as as clearly as I could. So it was also kind of um, a, a transition for me from being the one who was trying to impose order to being the one who was trying to uh, let somebody else's story kind Indeed, of the, the, uh, the, open up. And often people will sometimes, not stereotype, but I think give a high compliment that a professor, an instructor, a writer, you become a medium Mm. in that way share a little bit with us about your your intro what were some of the key points you mentioned in your introduction sure yeah uh well i tried to tell a little bit about the story of the authentication how we came to about this thing and what were the discoveries that we made along the way um there are some really 
fascinating um, passages from Reed's uh, file at mm-hmm. the House of Refuge. Mm-hmm. So the House of Refuge, this juvenile reformatory, kept very good records. Before what, he went to Auburn. Yeah, this is before, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways he would say the reason he went to Auburn, mm-hmm. that is, he, he, he would say that's what the reformatory makes as future mm-hmm. prisoners. <laughs> that mm-hmm. it's the beginning mm-hmm. of a cycle of mm-hmm. recidivism mm-hmm. And, and reincarceration. They kept very good records, and so they had um, an account of his uh, early life, uh, the, his situation with his family, and the, the first crime for which he had been sent to the refuge. And so that helped us to kind of compare to the story that Reed himself was telling yes. and, to, and to match these things up and to say, well, he really is, uh, he really is sort of re- reconstructing his own life, not, not fictionalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, although there are some interesting fictionalized passages and even plagiarized passages mm-hmm. in Reed's book. Um, but, but maybe the most fascinating thing there was two letters that Reed wrote back to the house of refuge in 1895. So when he was in, in, he was in his seventies at this point and he's writing to the superintendent asking if they still have his record there uh-huh. and if they can tell him anything about because he's, he's, he says, I'm, I'm given a, a history of my life and yes. he, he's still kind of looking for the traces of his own story at that time. And he tells a little bit about what's happened to him in the many decades since he was an inmate there at the the refuge. So I worked through those, um, you know, I I tried to build the kind of picture around Austin Reed to Mm -hmm. to tell a little bit about the city where he was from, the institutions he was in, and what we know about his life um, sort of before and after the the, uh, three scenes of incarceration that he passed through. Kind of a, boy, thanks for, for sharing that, kind of a metaphorical and really wide open question. What does that tell you about your research and your writing and reading other people and knowing biographies and history about the, the, the nature of the human spirit, just the, the nature of what it is to, to be human in spite of conditions? Wow, that's a tough one. I, I mean, you know, I guess I'll try to answer it um, in relationship to Austin Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think what was became so fascinating to me about Austin Reed here is the way that um, he sort of defied many different kinds of expectations. Indeed. Um, of course, there's the expectation that, that the uh, institution or the police and prisons of his time had that he um, couldn't, that he wasn't capable of doing anything mm. worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Here he wrote this magnificent, beautiful, terrifying book. Um, but there's also the expectation that some readers might have now that uh, what Reed is going to offer us is something like the sincere testimony of a survivor. I mean, it is that. The book is, it is, um, it does give an account of what he endured, and it is a kind of monument to his, um, to his own resourcefulness and inventiveness mm. that he was able to write this thing under the conditions he was living in. But again and again, he, kind of uh, eludes our grasp mm. Or, mm. or I felt that he eluded my grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, even as I learned everything that I thought there was to be found about him, even as I read his words over and over and over yes. again, um, he's, uh, he's telling us his own story, but he's also adopting a series of masks. He's also um, putting on a series of performances. Yes, And so his pursuit for freedom or to find a kind of autonomy or space mm-hmm. for himself to move in, yes, right, yes. is not only about speaking in open and sincere defiance uh, in testimony to his own humanity against these institutions that would have dehumanized him, although it is that, 
one of the ways that he finds that humanity or that he finds that autonomy or that freedom is by not fully surrendering to our grasp. Mm, that is giving mm, us something mm, to hold mm, on to teaser, um, teaser. that he can also disappear behind yes. at times. And, and, he re- and yes, it, when you, when you share, share that, and that's really insightful, there's, there, there are references to revelations. Yes, there are. Which end? Yeah, I, there's, a, there's a great deal of, um, I mean, Reed says at one point in his book that what he, uh, what he hopes to become is a Methodist minister. Mm-hmm. He was raised in Rochester, a scene of uh, great, evangelical revival he his family um helped to found rochester's first black church the african methodist episcopal church um and he was probably named after a man named austin stewart Hmm. who was an ex-slave and preacher who founded that church and taught the sunday school that austin reed almost surely attended um and the the church and austin stewart supported uh, Reed's family after the death of his father right. and, and the mm-hmm. mother belonged to that church probably until her mm-hmm. death in 1865. Mm-hmm. So he was raised close to the church yes. and then in the, in the reformatory and even in the prison um, was really close to a great deal of preaching, temperance lecturing and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, the, the uh, there's a, there's a little note that survived from Austin Reed to the chaplain of Auburn state prison, who seems to have supported him in the writing of his book. So mm. he was close to religious mm. figures mm. throughout his life, but there's really two kinds of religion or two kinds of Christianity at work in mm-hmm. Reed's book, at mm-hmm. least two. One is that, uh, the that kind of, uh, milder form of Christianity that he, that he might hope is going to help him to reform and that it, that might provide him as a, with a career as a Methodist minister or something like that. The other is a kind of vengeful, apocalyptic uh, Christianity. So pasted into the inside of the back cover of his, uh, of that bound journal, the, the manuscript, is a passage from the Book of Lamentations, hmm. right? full of cursing and invocations of a vengeful God who's going to bring justice against See? Reed's enemies. Yes. And throughout his book, there are these visions of fire. I mentioned he tries to hmm. burn down the farmer's mm-hmm. house. He says about the prison, about a, about a statue at the prison, you will melt away like wax wax before the burning blaze. Say that again. You will melt away like wax before the burning blaze. <laughs> That's right? pretty, so he's, pretty graphic. He's imagining this, <laughs> this consuming fire, right? That's yes. the kind of image of divine justice. So there's um, the people interested in the history of uh, religion in the 19th century, of African-American yes. religion in the 19th century would also find um, something to work through here. Again, and that would be the, the life and the adventures of a haunted convict. Uh, it's worth, it's, I mean, just... It's just so so fascinating just to hear you talk, and I you know I read, read a little. The reviews, the reviews are really I thought outstanding just from a consumer standpoint. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes sometimes people pe- think people are paid to write reviews or they're just it's someone's job. But every review that you shared with me, it seems to me that the reviewer really took took a sincere interest in what they were writing. Yeah, I mean, when you work on a book. Um, more or less in solitude that almost nobody else has read for five or six years. It's a wonderful moment to see people all of a sudden reading it and talking about it and caring about it and, and saying things about it that I hadn't myself Indeed. thought to say. Indeed, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, a few of the best, the, the, um, mag- the, the great historian Annette Gordon-Reed wrote about, wrote about this for the Washington Post. Um, there's, there's a poet and uh, now... New Haven uh, attorney, um, Reginald Dwayne Betts, who has, who wrote his own prison memoir some years ago, A Question of Freedom, and a few books of poetry often touching on these same same themes. Exactly. Who who just graduated from 
Yale Law School, and um, he wrote about Austin Reed for The Atlantic in a really moving piece that kind of shifts back and forth between talking about his own experience and, um, and the things he sees that he can uh, identify with or hold on to from Reed's story and the things that he can't as mm-hmm. well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been um, really beautiful to see so many people taking the book seriously, finding things to uh, love in it that I hadn't even seen to love. That, 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 that definitely came across me. I, I was re- really impressed. What's, what's the potential, do you think, the applicability, the, the need, the interest, the, the impact, if it was used more in, is, um, on, a, on a required reading list or part of... Yeah. Would a high, high school student, college... What kind of audiences do you think would be most receptive people that are captured in the educational system at the moment? Yeah, well, I have taught it myself, both in my Yale classroom and um, at uh, Cheshire Correctional Institute here in Connecticut to a group of students there. Um, actually, it was still in, ma- in manuscript then, and I took it in for a kind of workshop mm-hmm. to ask hmm. what they made of it. And uh, one of my former students and I, Bashan Brown, have written about, um, have written, have published a conversation about, about Austin Reed. Um, you know, I think Part of what it gives us is an opening into the origins of what has become the most saturating system of captivity yes. in the United States now. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it very difficult to tell the story of 19th century American history as a story of um, as a as as a, a story of rising emancipation, um, because here's Reed. Uh, sort of on the eve of emancipation, mm. describing the formation of the system that's going to come to take the place of the plantation, mm-hmm. um, making that connection very explicit. You know, um, when we teach that moment of uh, of liberation around the Civil War, uh, we think about the Emancipation Proclamation, and we think about the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, yes. that amendment says. Yes. And um, it's often said that, especially in the South, the the criminal justice system took advantage of that exception Indeed. to transform its criminal justice system into the new slavery um, in contract leasing, in prison farms. Many of these prison farms still exist, Angola, Parchment, and so on, on the grounds of old plantations. Mm-hmm. But part of the story Reed is showing us, you know, it wasn't the Southern legislatures that had that influence <laughs> in that period to make that exception in, in the constitution. It was made on account of places like Auburn state prison yes. in New York state, yes. where they had systems of prison labor, um, penal servitude that they needed to protect. And they were worried that they would no longer be able to run their prisons in the way they were running them. If indeed slavery was abolished or involuntary mm-hmm. servitude was abolished. So the um, part of it is, a, is a story about, um, rethinking a narrative of emancipation. Part of it is a story about uh, rethinking the relationship between North and South along the axis of freedom and unfreedom. And I don't like to get, tell people how to spend their money, uh, but as you know, on Netflix, there's the thir- you re- referenced the 13th Amendment. Have you seen the, the documentary Ava Devane, the 13th? No, tell there's, me about it. Well, no, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you got you to you go to Netflix. But there, it says it's um, Ava DuVernay, She's right. uh, done a documentary on the thir- the thir- the thirteenth. Right, right, Let's go to Netflix right. on the thirteenth. Yeah, I've heard of it. And and references. It's just it's maybe five five six weeks. It's been out, so it's new. Mm-hmm. But references everything you mentioned in terms right. of the his historical transition and just a slavery by another name. Uh, but also it just talks about where are we today. And Van Jones is interviewed. Michelle Alexander is interviewed. Right. So this is a beyond a tipping point moment. So hopefully we we all won't crash. But 
this is a, a key moment. It's just so, so such a blessing to have you on, on the show today to kind of talk about the last 100, 200 years. And then what, what does it mean as we move forward for another 100 or 200 years? Oh. We're, we're, we're kind of winding up and you have already committed earlier in the show. I have the tape coming back. So we're going to, that, that, that's, I'm going to make that happen. All that, right. Depending on your schedule. Uh, but as we kind of wind down and close down, and really it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show and Professor Caleb Smith is here. The book is available. It's, it's uh, the, the Life and Adventures of a Haunted Conflict, a convict rather, uh, Austin Reed is, is the author, but Caleb's been very instrumental. Any closing thoughts, or you referenced David Blight, you just so much swirling through, through my mind mm-hmm. in, in your previous books, uh, but this is a critical moment in American history, to say the least. Would you say that? I do feel that, and I think that Austin Reed speaks to our moment. Um, the, I think I would, uh, I, I think the way he speaks to it is by posing for us a decision about two different ways that we might stand against the expansion of a prison system. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly uh, gives us ways to think about prison reform. Mm-hmm. He talks about the introduction of libraries, for instance, mm-hmm. into the prisons. He talks about the reformers and the politicians who made it possible for him to be working on a book, who, who helped to educate him and um, who helped to make his experience more like one of rehabilitation than like one of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. And he has some very positive things to say about uh, those reformers. Uh, and so we could, we could in some ways see Austin Reed as participating in that tradition mm. of prison mm. reform, of trying to make prisons uh, less brutal, of trying to make them more humane, of, and of trying to make them um, places from which one might emerge um, better than one was when one went in. But there's another side to Austin Reed, and that's that fiery side mm, that, that doesn't say things like, we need a better prison. It says things like, we need to burn them all down. Sure, the abolitionist. The, <laughs> right, ab- the abolitionist right. There's trend. that much more radical position. There's that, um, there's that position that won't be satisfied uh, not uh, until the prison is, is, is in ashes mm-hmm. around his feet. Um, and, and thinking about which of those positions we want to stand in in opposition to these institutions is uh, one thing. Austin Reed can give us. Excellent. Excellent. We lift up Austin Reed. We lift you up, Professor Smith. And this is the Tom Ficklin show. And just so want to just thank you so much for joining us, joining us this morning. Lucy folks can find us how again, if they like to, it's we're available everywhere. 24, seven, three, sixty five. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to go on a Tom Ficklin binge lesson, which I, uh, I have done and I highly recommend you can find us a couple of different ways. Uh, so on the website, www.newhavenindependent.org, there is usually a daily roundup of the shows on WNHHLP, but you can also find us on SoundCloud or iTunes at WNHH Community Radio or Facebook at WNHH Community Radio or Twitter at WNHHLP. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. And those are all free. Thank you very much for having me today. Caleb, it's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure. See you soon. Okay. See everybody next Monday.